Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 12th, 2023. I forgot what day it was. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, this week you got over to Times Square to see the Sheldon Harnick Memorial. So tell us about this. Oh, well, it was a wonderful afternoon, as you might imagine. Uh, Sheldon being an example of someone who was not only greatly respected for his work in the theater, but obviously completely beloved by everyone. Uh, it just the people who were there either on stage singing or speaking uh, or in the audience uh, it was an amazing congregation of people who loved him um, just really beautifully put together. Uh, Danny Burstein opened the show. Uh, then Elena Shadow came out and sang, When Did I Fall in Love? Jason Danieli uh, did a beautiful job with Now I Have Everything. David Rockwell spoke. Jen Gambates came on and sang The Shape of Things, which is, if you don't know, it is an absolutely hilarious comedy number that Sheldon wrote early on. And isn't, I believe he wrote the music and the lyrics. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, And I had the unbelievable uh, pleasure of, you know, sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. Some years ago, uh, I heard Charlotte Ray sing it. That's right. At an event honoring uh, an event honoring Sheldon when he was very much still with us, uh, and I'll never forget that. But I must say, Jen Gambates did a beautiful, beautiful job with it, and she should be very proud. Um, Deborah Grace Weiner, uh, who was instrumental in putting this whole uh, memorial together, spoke. Robert Cuccioli sang "In My Own Lifetime," and he has a history with the Rothschilds because he had played. Um, which son is it, Nathan? Uh, one 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 of the sons. Yeah, well, 
way back in uh, that circle in the square downtown when that existed, right? Right, which I saw and then mm-hmm. later uh, played mm-hmm. uh, Meyer in mm-hmm. the uh, the Rothschilds and Sons, Rothschild mm-hmm. and Sons mm-hmm. reworking of it at the York. Um, Sherman Yellen, uh, mm-hmm. the collabor- uh, one of the, the collaborators, the book writer for the Rothschilds was there in, in a wheelchair, but he was there and he mm-hmm. came on and he spoke beautifully about Sheldon. Um, Alan Schmuckler uh, played and sang a, a song Peppercorn, which was an earlier version of Now I Have Everything. And that was fascinating. Uh, Alexandra Silber, beautiful job with Far From the Home I Love. Karen Ziemba came on to read um, a message from Cheetah Rivera, who could not be there, but definitely wanted to. Uh, you know, join in the tribute. Um, Beth Harnick Dorn spoke, um, the, uh, the daughter. Uh, Nancy Opal came and did a Butcher's Soul, which was a cut song from Fiddler on the Roof. Karen Ziemba sang Gorgeous uh, from the Apple Tree. Uh, Danny Burstein and Jessica Hecht repeated, uh, reprised their uh, performance of Do You Love Me from Fiddler, uh, from that revival. And then um, Rob Fisher spoke very eloquently about Sheldon, followed by, amazingly, uh, John Kander, um, uh, who came on and uh, and played and sang and spoke. And as I think it was Karen Ziemba said, you know, to have one living legend uh, like John uh, uh, tribute uh, a recently deceased living uh, legend um it was one of those moments where you just you're just really privileged oh and someone i think it was also karen and and, uh, and maybe other people who made the point of how lucky we are that our lives intersected with these artists i mean there are people there are so many people who um I mean, I actually did meet Richard Rogers once briefly, but I don't feel like my life really intersected with his. Uh, and of course, the people before that, Jerome Kern and the and George Gershwin, but but all of these people, like like uh, Sheldon and Sondheim and John Kander, it's it's you know we 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 were here when they were, and it's it's mm-hmm. just amazing. Um, to wrap up, uh, Judy Kuhn. Um, who I extolled recently for her performance in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. Um, and that was a, a, a an alto uh, role, I would say, in terms of the songs. But here she sang Vanilla Ice Cream. And it mm-hmm. sounded like the original key to me. Uh, <laughs> and if not, it was certainly up there. So she still got her soprano aside from everything else. And then Harvey Firestein came on and uh, let everyone in Lachaim and it that was the end of it it was it was really just a a memorable wonderful afternoon wow that is uh wonderful over at the music box uh thank you for giving us a recap of that michael also this week uh we heard from the dramatist uh guild that they have a dramatist legal defense fund uh you want to say something about that oh yeah this this sounds so important uh i'm just going to read um because it it, it it makes it so clear the dramatist legal defense fund dldf has announced the second edition of band together b-a-n-n-e-d together an anti-censorship theater podcast uh and uh two new episodes were released on monday november 6th and they'll be available to 
stream through the 30th of, of November this month. So um, it says to raise awareness regarding the societal dangers of censorship in the theater industry and at large, the Dramatist Guild will be pre presenting this uh, podcast uh, which will address the dire con consequences that can arise from banning plays and musicals. Uh, this initiative began in 2016 uh, when theatrical works are banned in one community, whether removed from a classroom, a library shelf, or a stage, it is a constitutional infringement upon the opportunities, livelihoods, and rights of dramatists, including playwrights, composers, lyricists, and librettists everywhere. Uh, it goes on to say uh, it's uh, maybe not all of our listeners are aware of the degree to which this has been happening more and more recently. And it's very, very frightening and horrible and scary and, and all things bad. Um, so uh, let's see the uh, the artists involved in this current podcast include. I'm sorry, I had it right here. Uh, Danny Burstein, Gabriel Ebert, Nathan Lane, Audra McDonald, Daphne Rubin Vega, and Brandon Uranowitz, uh, along with many more. Uh, the plays featured on the podcast include The Laramie Project, Anna in the Tropics, Angels in America, Indecent by Paula Vogel and Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress. Uh, the podcast also includes performances of songs from musicals Fun Home, um, Parade, uh, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Hairspray, and Rent. So I'm not, again, I'm not sure if, if everyone's aware that these shows have been censored and or banned in certain communities and certain venues. Um, so it's really, really something that sounds incredibly important. Go to the website. It's www.thedldf.org. Uh, and you can listen to the podcast there and then also read more about the whole initiative and, and these, these horrible bannings and censorships that are happening all over the place. Yeah, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes, and uh, you can check that out there. It's it's very interesting uh, uh, to uh, uh, hear that list of shows that yeah you, you think to yourself, why in the world would that get banned? But, and that's not a complete list by any means. Yeah, sure. Uh, also in the news this week, um, that uh, off-Broadway show that has hit 5,000 performances and uh, is mostly about me uh, because it's called Sleep No More. <laughs> Sleep No More is closing. Uh, so the, the site-specific immersive experience uh, is hitting 5,000 performances. Peter and Michael, how long ago did you see P Sleep No More? Wow, I can't even begin to think when it happened. Um, it it wasn't a show for me, by the way. I didn't much like it. Um, uh, it just running around um, a, a building and seeing this, that, and the other thing, and uh, very little entertainment value that I could find. But um, obviously, I was in the minority, and that's fine with me. I'm very glad that uh, brought a lot of people a lot of pleasure. Did you like it, Michael? No, not at all. And uh, but mostly because I, I've always made the point repeatedly. I I just don't think that they made it clear and i think many people going into it had no idea that there's no dialogue in it 
Mm-hmm. No, it's it's just like an art installation. Yes, sort of. you you go from yeah. you go from room to room, and there are these you know some of them are very effectively designed uh, uh, of these various locales, and it's, it purports to tell the story of Macbeth. I I never got that. Um, I didn't either. Maybe very briefly in one or two moments, and then I suppose the final banquet scene. Um, if you if you were there uh, when you were supposed to be, which I guess they tried to get people into that room at the same time for the ending. Um, but yeah, so all of for all of those reasons, I didn't like it. And also I was annoyed um, by the first line of the press release announcing the closing because it says um, sleep no more. The site specific immersive experience that introduced an entirely new art form to and forever changed New York's theatrical landscape has announced its final extension and will close on January 28th, 2024. Well, I don't I mean, first of all, I don't think it introduced the art form if they're talking about bringing the audience from one room to the another, because that was done previously in Tamara. Uh, if if only that. <laughs> and Tamara had actual dialogue with actual actors doing actual scenes. So um, that was a better. <laughs> that and was the show food. that. Yeah, good food, really good food. <laughs> um, and and I also don't think it's true to say that uh, Sleep No More has forever changed New York's theatrical landscape because I'm not aware of any other show. Um, that leads you from room to room where most of them are empty and uh, and in other ones, people are just doing may- maybe like choreography and dancing and uh, but not doing scenes. Uh, I, I don't know of any other show like that. Uh, maybe I, I think that that same company maybe produced a few others that I opted not to see. Uh, so anyway, it was not for me. Uh, but also, I think that it was always very misleadingly marketed, and um, uh, and the the, the press uh, for it w- was not did not give an accurate picture of what people would expect. Um, and I, I I can only guess that the the main reason for its great success and its very long run is that you don't have to speak English. Uh, uh, you know, mm. and so all all those tourists. Um, I mean, you don't have to the, speak a word of English. The cat's defense. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Yes. Well, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, the other, <laughs> the other thing I have to say is that um, I couldn't figure out how to get out of there, and I really wanted to, mm. and I finally decided to turn on my cell phone. As soon as I did, somebody walked over and said, sir, you cannot have your cell phone on. And I said, how do I get out of here? And they showed me the way out. And that was that. So um, so I wasn't <laughs> there. For, uh, for, I was there about an hour, maybe longer. I don't know. It seemed longer. And so, um, and if you do want to go, if you still want to go before it closes, be aware that if you have claustrophobia issues, uh, that might be something that you might want to rethink because the first thing that happens is you put, they give everyone masks and then they herd everyone into a elevator that's very very crowded and then you uh you're brought up to to the this floor on which everything happens and that was a very very scary moment um for me and I'm I'm not I don't think I'm even particularly <laughs> claustrophobic so and a friend I remember a friend of mine said he he almost had a panic attack Wow. Um, at one point, because it, it it's it's just kind of weird. 
Peter, you uh, couldn't find your way out. You had to channel your Anna Linda. <laughs> I did the best I could, but can I tell you? <laughs> so uh, interesting, uh, so much news about the Immersive Productions as Here Lies Love cl- announces a November closing date. Uh, mm-hmm. Very much mm-hmm. premature than anybody had thought this was going to happen. Uh, so uh, did this surprise you? We we saw that this was coming in the grosses. Well, um, no, that's the reason why it didn't surprise me. I mean, the, the grosses being what they were, it seemed like a losing battle. So go ahead, Michael. I, I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I saw the show. Was it ten years ago at at yeah, uh, the public theater, and it was a big hit there. But the theater, I, I I'm going to guess that that theater space there was maybe one tenth the size of the Broadway theater. Um, so, and uh, I think they were counting on the uh, David Byrne uh, involvement here uh, to help make this a big hit. But the thing is, he was not long ago on Broadway himself mm. in in a show, you know, with him on stage. <laughs> um, and here he, you know, he just wrote, wrote it uh co-wrote it so um maybe they counted too heavily on on his name and there there is no star in it except um there was for a little while uh leah salongo was in the show for only like the first couple of months right uh Mm -hmm. but then she left so there's not even that to sell it on and as several friends of mine have pointed out uh, how many people today even know who imelda marcos was um you know Mm. uh, you have to be kind of older to remember all that uh and so that's another strike against them and 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 then they had the uh, additional tremendous expenses of of uh, basically almost gutting and reconfiguring the broadway theater uh to have this be an immersive production um so uh, and i I don't know if i mean how much of that would be considered part of their budget and how much of it is just uh that the theater uh picked up themselves um but with all those things in retrospect it just looks like it was an unfortunate idea and i uh, I'm sad to the extent that I really loved it. I really, really enjoyed it very, very much. So uh, for the less than 1% of the Broadway video listeners who are going to be as excited as this as I am, the uh, <laughs> we have a new uh, production of an immersive Starlight Express being mounted in the UK. <laughs> so <laughs> perhaps <laughs> perhaps it could come and fill the Broadway theater there uh, now that it's it got big, uh, empty, empty space inside of it. And well, there had also, got... of course, been talk of the guys and dolls. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the London in... guys and dolls. Yeah. yeah, because that is uh, to to a deg- one degree or another also immersive. Interesting. All right, so Michael, you went to the theater with your pal Joey. Yeah. Oh wait, no, you went to City Center's uh, gala where they were. Mounting this new production of Pal Joey, and how new is it, Michael? Well, it, they should never have called it that. I yeah. mean, I, I hope we can all agree on that, regardless of whether you loved or hated this production or, or were somewhere in the middle. 
it's just not pal joey and <laughs> many friends of mine have been calling it not pal joey uh <laughs> I, I i i always hate it when that happens when shows are were are tremendously rewritten and the original title is retained just for branding and for marketing purposes again you know i mean either you're giving people what they know and love or you're not but don't try to trade on the title if you're going to give them something completely different this has a new book by richard lagravenez and daniel koa Beatty, um and it is now basically a Rogers and Hart jukebox musicals because it uh, musical because it includes mm, about half the score maybe of Pal Joey and many many other songs from other Rogers and Hart shows I, I you know I I did um, the boys from Syracuse in concert I, I produced and directed a uh, presentation of that at fifty four below a while ago and there were. <laughs> at least two songs from that so my life was flashing before my eyes i'm like what is that what are those songs doing here um uh the lady is a tramp which was originally written for babes in arms um now seems to be considered part of the score of pal joey uh because that was added at least as far back as the film version uh, with Frank Sinatra, which I believe was 1957, um, so et cetera, et cetera. But the the main issue here is they have created this completely new story about Joey uh, now being a black man, and he uh, rather than being a um, a, a very uh, conniving and uh, misogynistic uh, go getter kind of a ruthless uh white guy uh you know who's trying to get ahead in show business and doing whatever he can you know and showing no morals um no now he's a black guy who is uh, exhibits some of those traits but it's because he um he is experiencing discrimination and bigotry uh, at every turn and in terms of like not being hired, etc., to express his his artistic self in you know in his music, um, and so you have an incredibly weird situation here where he keeps going on and on about that, and he mentions people during the show like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk, but um, then he. All of the music he sings is by Rodgers and Hart, uh, by these two old white guys. Uh, so, and I guess they're supposed to think it's um, it's okay because now they're in very new arrangements uh, by Daryl Waters, who is also uh, African American. Uh, but I, I just I just don't really buy that. I think I think what they should have done uh, when they had this idea for uh, to do this to Pal Joey is they should have written a, a new script uh, with you know maybe the same basic story and a different title, and they should have used music by Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn and Fat Swaller and people like that. Um, I and I think that would have been much better received by the critics and the audiences. So, if I ruled the world, 
And if I, or at least <laughs> if I ran, if I ran city center, that's what I would have done. But this, as it was, was, I have to say, it was just a blot on them. It was not officially part of the Encores series. So you can't uh, say it's a blot on the Encore series in that sense, but definitely one on city center. And I, I thought it was a, a, a tremendous epic huge misfire uh and i'm i only i mean i i didn't expect anything else because of what i had heard and because the uh, concept itself sounded so awful but i i kind of felt like i had to go for uh, just historical purposes to see for myself i i made the opposite decision uh when i opted out of seeing uh the encore's production of the life uh, because I just thought I would be too upset, uh, but here I did go, and I and I was I was upset, <laughs> but I, I'm still glad I went just for the historical uh, aspect of being able to say that I did see it, and you know, so I can comment on it uh, rather than commenting on it and not having seen it. <laughs> okay, so that is uh, the city center gala production of pal joey it uh it has closed right it was uh just till november 1st to the 5th oh, yeah. yes long gone. so it's long closed a week ago and we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to go back and read a little bit about that but uh i'd love to see savion glover and tony goldwyn and all these other people in do something else do something else <laughs> i mean i love these people i want to see them do something uh you know if, if i see them on stage i would be like i needed that mm-hmm. oh wait <laughs> so uh michael and peter got over to the american airlines theater to see i need that with uh danny devito lucy devito and ray anthony tom Thomas. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on I Need need That? I liked it quite a bit, and I'll tell you why. Um, It's about a hoarder. Danny DeVito plays a guy, and uh, I'm reminded of what Clive Barnes said about the set of American Buffalo, that it wasn't so much designed as it was (laughs) thrown together, put together, accumulated, because that's what you see. You see this, that, and the other thing, uh, memories of long past. um, They they just filled it with junk. Um, And it it does deal with the fact that... um, Here's this man who does have a friend who drops by every now and then. Um, the guy turns out to be not so good a friend, but that's another story. Um, but the real problem, the conflict comes when his daughter shows up. And the daughter um, is very, very critical, needless to say, as many daughters are of their parents, but with with good cause, because after all, this guy is hoarding. And she says, you know, this is not healthy. You shouldn't be doing this. This is all wrong. Clean up, will you please? And every time um, she tries to get him to do one thing or another in terms of cleaning up, what does he do? Of course, he essentially says, I don't think he ever actually uses the words, I need that, but um, that's essentially what it comes down to. I need that. And he doesn't, but um, he does. (laughs) Um, What struck me so wonderful about the play is eventually he has a choice. And that is to think about what he wants to keep. Or does he want to keep a friendship? There is a point in the play where we find out that it's more important to him to have a friend than it is to have these items. 
And I think that's really a good point that Teresa Rebeck, the playwright, makes. However, he also has a very nice speech at the end of the play where he talks about the fact that um, he um, loves these possessions because they remind him of these people as well. So she gives you both sides of the coin, as the playwright does, which is the fact that, yes, people are far more important than possessions, but possessions can remind us of people. I have to say that after my wife dumped me, um, the next woman I was with gave me a vase that has lived in my apartments since 1977. It goes with nothing. (laughs) I mean, nothing. Um, And yet I will not throw it out um, because indeed it was an important part of my life. And so this perhaps is why I relate to this play so much. Um, even though I'm not quite a hoarder. I don't know. Do you think I am? Um, <laughs> James and Michael have been to my apartment, not to my new one, I'll grant you. But um, <laughs> it's it's more a collection than hoarding. I mean, it's not like I have useless items. Well, I guess there are certain original cast albums that are useless, but that's another story. But <laughs> all things considered, you know, I, I really did relate to the I, I love the point in the play where it turned out that people were more important than possessions. And then I love the part in the play where possessions turned out to be important because they remind you of people. So that's why I liked, I need that. All right. Michael, what did you think? I agree with all of that. And I think those are two very good points um, that you just made uh, about the, the, the core of the play. Uh, I uh, have always had mixed feelings about Teresa Rebeck, uh, as I mentioned, and, and as it happens, um, still playing off Broadway is her play dig, uh, which I think is uh, definitely on the, the, uh, the, the lowest end of, of the scale in terms of the quality of her output. So I would not go to that one, (laughs) Um, but I would, see i need that instead if you if you feel like you'd like to see teresa rebeck play and also um you get danny devito uh and his daughter his real life daughter lucy devito um doing a fine job as his daughter in the play and ray anthony thomas um who plays the friend that peter mentioned yeah i think he um i what i really liked about him is he had such a warm uh presence on stage and he really did seem like uh he was a very good friend to this fellow. Uh, and then uh, as Peter also alluded to, then, then it turns out that it gets a little more complicated and it turns out that um, that character Foster has um, a, a little bit of an agenda or there's more to it than, than we initially thought. But um, that, uh, that just made it all the more important. I think that he, came across as such an engaging and and very warm presence on stage. Danny DeVito himself, his comic timing, of course, is peerless. Um, And so that was really great. It's not, this play is not a laugh riot. Uh, It's not like it's filled with jokes, but um, you know, there's the humor of this situation. And uh, yeah, I I also agree that it was quite moving at the end. Uh, I may, I'm sure I mentioned before that um, some years ago, a movie came out, a very small uh, independent movie called Hello, My Name is Doris with Sally Field. And she uh, played a hoarder in that uh, hoarder who lived on Staten Island. And um, that one, I think, got more into the actual psychology of hoarding uh, and also um, 
the uh, the drama of it. Uh, it it wasn't so much so important uh, in this play, which was really more about his relationship with his daughter and his friend, and uh, and the hoarding was really just sort of the um, the vehicle for that. The the uh, you know the 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 context for it, um, but. Uh, so, so those two entertainments were were different in that sense. Uh, I, I did like it um, when "Hello, My Name Is Doris" got into more into the drama and psychology of the hoarding because I think that gave um, Sally Field more to play. Uh, but as Peter mentioned, uh, it it does come up a few times, and and it does certainly inform that that speech, that monologue, or, or whatever you would call it that. Danny DeVito has at the end where he explains about um, that he keeps the stuff as a lot of it is memory of his, his wife, his dead wife. Um, so um, yeah. So I, I thought it was a, a very uh, rewarding. Uh, it was basically 90 minutes or a hundred, hundred, hundred minutes, maybe <laughs> uh, directed by Moritz von Stupelnagel. And again, written by Teresa Rebeck at Roundabout Theater Company, American Airlines Theater on 42nd Street. So uh, I wanted to, uh, unrelated to this production of I Need That, uh, there, there's a mix of uh, various press releases and their website and things like that uh, list both the American Airlines Theater and the Todd Hames Theater. Now, we did have an announcement that they were going to rename the theater, the Todd Hames Theater, but I didn't think it officially happened. Do you guys know anything about it? No, no, no. So uh, it is um, here and there uh, in various uh, forms called the Todd Hames Theater. So I thought there was going to be a ceremony about the, uh, the former president and CEO who passed away earlier this year. So, uh, interesting about that. Uh, I have a tangential question about the hoarder thing. Mm. Uh, Peter and Michael, what do you think? Is Oscar Madison a hoarder or just messy? Messy. Yeah, messy. <laughs> I mean, you don't see a, a lot of stuff in that apartment. Um, mm. yeah, it, well, I figured that was P- Felix that would. No, no, no. Even at the beginning, you know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's nothing uh, cluttering that apartment. Um, yeah, it's just things are thrown around, but it's not that there's a tremendous yeah. amount of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, it, isn't it? Isn't it about time we had an odd couple back on Broadway? Yeah, <laughs> fine with me. Well, now that now there's this thought that um, Neil Simon's audience is gone, but maybe not for that play. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you tell Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker, who just took their show to London. You know, <laughs> right? Good point. Good, <laughs> and um, made a lot of money uh, with uh, on Broadway uh, last season or the season before. I can't recall. So, all right. Next up, Michael, you headed over to Theater Road to see Arms and the Man, uh, the Gingold Theatrical Group's production. So, tell us about it. Yeah, Peter already spoke about it, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But I really. Um, wanted to get there because I had heard very good things and they turned out to be uh, extremely accurate. Um, I think David Stoller, uh, who is the artistic director of the Gingold Theatrical Group and also the director of this production did a really 
marvelous job with this play. Um, aside from everything else, uh, I don't think I don't think it was cut, but he somehow got it down to two hours with one intermission, uh, which is kind of amazing. Uh, it's, well, I mean, one one reason, one thing that helped is that initially. Uh, originally, I believe there was two, there were two intermissions that were three acts. Um, so just cutting out one intermission obviously saves a lot of time. But also just just really keeping the pace up, which is vital in Shaw because it is talky. I, I don't know any other word for it. It's very very talky. A lot of um, people talking about things rather than um, actual you know doing or action. Uh, and uh so that was a really 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 great aspect of this production and then also um i've seen a few other gingold shows recently and david he really seems to come up with a wonderful mix of people um who we know and people who we've never heard of and uh you know new uh well, or at least new to me, uh, a- actors, up and coming people, young people who really are all fantastic. So in this case, uh, the, the the actors that I knew going into it were Karen Ziemba, who was wonderful as Catherine Petkoff, and Thomas J. Ryan, uh, also wonderful as her husband, Major Paul Petkoff. Uh, oh, and also Ben Davis, who played um, <laughs> Major Sergius Saranoff. But then we had these other really great people, Chanel Bailey as Raina, uh, which could be maybe seen as the central role. Um, Delphi Boric as Luca, the maid. Uh, Kishav Mudliar as Captain Blunchley, who is the most, uh, certainly the most colorful role in the show he's the the uh so-called chocolate cream soldier um and he was really i mean he's really a find as far as uh, i'm concerned just very handsome and a beautiful speaking voice and lots and lots of charisma on stage um and then the final member of the cast was evan zess as nicola nicola um and so really uh, uh and and then also on top of all that the stage uh the stage uh, uh at at this particular theater uh at theater row is not i wouldn't say it's tiny but it's not large and yet they managed to do a lovely little set that is the concept of it was almost as if it was a stencil or a sketch mm-hmm. of uh, a a sketch of a of a set on on white background i mean there were returns and there was a backdrop but they all looked uh, it was just black and white and it looked like a sketch um that's the only way i can phrase it um so it, it was really just thoroughly delightful and the audience really seemed to stay with it even in the talkier moments of it because the performances and the direction were so excellent so i'm really glad i i got there um uh before it closed okay so that is uh gingold theatrical groups arms and the man at theater row and it's playing through november 18th and we'll have a link to that in the show notes 
Uh, both Michael and Peter got over to the actress' temple to see Ode to the Wasp Woman. So, Mike, uh, actually, Peter, why don't you get us started on this? I don't think I've ever seen a show that is uh, that has been so incorrectly named. <laughs> wouldn't you assume that Ode to a Wasp Woman would center on one person? Uh, wouldn't you assume that it might be a one-person show? In fact, maybe hmm. uh, a, a man talking about or a woman talking about um, somebody very important to him or her. Well, actually, I, I, I don't know why this title was chosen, but um, because it's the show really is in four parts and deals with four different people. Um, the word was the words was woman show up once fleetingly when somebody is watching a TV show, but it's really about Susan Cabot, George Reeves, Barbara Payton, and Alfalfa. Now, Alfalfa um, is best it was the name given to the um, actor who uh, was in the Argan comedies, who came to a bad end. Um, we know from the movie Hollywoodland, if you hadn't heard before, that George Reeves, who played Superman, came to a bad end as well, um, by his own hand, I'm sorry to say. You may not be as familiar with the stories of Barbara Payton and Susan Cabot, played by Sean Young, by the way. Um, and um, the... They they may uh, be flummoxing you in some way uh, because you you don't know them, but but um, I have to say that the show is astonishingly poorly written, um, very very uh, inept in almost every way. There's there's a moment too that um, I've never seen before on stage where there is a comment made on anal smell. Um, so that's the type of level we're talking about here. And um, uh, so it's very, uh, the acting um, is not good, I'm sorry to say. And um, here we are at the actor's temple and there are crucifixes on the door of the set. Now, um, you you assume because they're there that um, they have something to do with the, the story, but no, they don't. And I don't know why they would put um, pictures in front of those crucifixes um, to establish a mood um, that's very different from a religious one, because there's very, really, very little religion, if any, in this uh, property. Uh, this is a total washout, I'm sorry to say. Nobody can be any good with dialogue that um, has happened here. Um, Ryder McDowell wrote it. He also directed. Um, one has to wonder if um, people turned him down and he said, um, oh, what the hell, I'll do it myself. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not accusing him of that because that may not be the story. But, um, but anyway, I think this one is a real horror, a true atrocity, a humiliation to all concerned. And... Um, Michael, <laughs> I think you were too kind in what uh, you just said. All right. <laughs> yeah, very, very unfortunate. Uh, a site I don't know where to start, but I'll I'll start with the set. Do you? What was that supposed to be? Do you? I, I initially I thought it was a funeral home. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Because sure. there were the the crosses, and then there were um, some flowers in in vases upstage. Did you see those? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh, but n none of the, not one scene in the play takes place in a funeral home. So I didn't get that. Uh, there was also um, an incredibly strange thing that happened right from the beginning that made you wonder what was going on and what you were about to see. Because um, the first, uh, the, each each of the uh, actors, each of the characters that Peter just mentioned, 
they have a, a brief monologue in the beginning introducing themselves uh, and explaining very briefly who they are and, and you know, not necessarily how they died, but that they, they came to a, a bad end. But even though you have <laughs> the four actors on stage, um, all of those monologues were recorded. I know that was so bizarre. And and the actors stood up in in a sort of a spotlight and and stood there uh with maybe like changing their expressions slightly on their faces as the recorded monologues played uh one after the other. Uh I don't know what that was and there were one or two other moments in the play where the same thing happened. Uh recorded dialogue took over while the actors sort of mimed on the stage um god god only knows what what that is so i'm not even going to attempt to uh to speculate but yeah I, I had the same thought that maybe um maybe the writer and the director were the same person only because nobody wanted to collaborate on this i should say early on um right now um and i'm i'm sure i mentioned this is about oh gosh well, it was pre-pandemic, so it was longer ago than I thought it was. But I did see Sean Young not long before the pandemic uh, be really terrific in a production of Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike out at the Engerman Theater mm. on Long Island. And uh, I went with Steven Brinberg, and we were both um, very thrilled with how wonderful she was in that role. I, 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 I'm sure I said at the time, she was far better we thought than Sigourney Weaver who had played it on Broadway so I don't uh, I, I don't know uh, Peter if you could even glean from this play that she can still act but uh, I can testify to that on the basis of that production certainly not on the basis of this one I don't know if um, anyone would be able to look past the dialogue the the actual writing of this this horrific play uh, to be able to say that, oh, yes, she can still act. And um, I think that maybe goes for the it's other people. I'm sorry. It's music, too. I should have been music, too, right? Oh, yes. At, 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 at various <laughs> intervals, suddenly e each one of these um, ill-fated four people uh, stand up and sing a song, uh, previously written songs. Um, mm-hmm uh for for no reason at all and i'm and i wasn't sure if that was to a recorded accompaniment or if someone was backstage on a electric keyboard or, or whatever um anyway um yeah and she did have a nice voice when she sang <laughs> um yeah uh, the other actors uh, similarly i i don't feel that i would even want to attempt to judge their ability based on this play because it, it just was so, 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 so poorly written and directed. And uh, technically it was also horrendous uh, scene changes that it took forever, even though they didn't involve much, just like moving around some props and things of that sort. Um, yeah. Really, really unfortunate, bad um, waste of time uh, and money, I guess. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so uh, that's Ode to the Wasp Woman at the Actors Temple. It's uh, playing through January 31st, 2024, I guess, their website. Yeah, we'll on. see about that. 
Well, the website says 2023, but 2020, January 31st has already passed on 2023. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, on a different note, Michael, you got over to Don't Tell Mama to see John Philip in Oceans of Love and Life, which is directed by Marilyn, Mer- Marilyn May. So tell us about it. Yeah, I can't really offer an official review because I've known John for like 30 years. Um, and also, uh, uh, well, you know, I've actually become quite friendly with Marilyn recently, I'm happy to say. Uh, but this, um, they've been working together for a while. And I think uh, they really enjoy working together. And I think that it was very smart of John to hire Marilyn as his director uh, because she, um, I think she directed this in a way to play to his strengths. Uh, John um, was a, really a, quite an up and coming actor uh, at one point many years ago. Uh, and he has a, um, a a very prominent featured role in the film, The Bostonians with Christopher Reeve and uh, Vanessa Redgrave, et cetera. Uh, but then he, uh, um, I think he decided that maybe um, he'd rather be a lawyer <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of that was based on just, uh, you know, career um, st- stability or, or whatever, <laughs> but uh, but that's that's what he did. So um, so he he is a lawyer, um, but he, he still uh, keeps his hand in uh, theatrical things. He is also a playwright. I actually directed to very brief plays that he wrote um at the manhattan theater source some years ago um and he uh so yeah so marilyn played to his strengths here and and actually um encouraged him to really act the songs um to the point of uh, in in some cases uh speak speaking the lyrics rather than singing them um but always, um, you know, going back to the melody at, at key moments. And so uh, the I, title of the show is Oceans of Love and Life. And it had um, some really wonderful songs in it, including one of my all-time favorites uh, and something that I used to sing at piano bars, uh, My Ship <laughs> from Lady in the Dark. Um, other songs with, uh, with sea and water uh, themes and motifs. Um, so yeah, so it said, "Don't tell Mama." And let's see, uh, uh, it was November seventh, eighth, and eleventh, and there is one more on the fifteenth at seven p.m. Um, and Marilyn was there uh, providing uh, support, uh, so it was great to see her again. And so um, that's my report on. A cabaret show by an old friend. <laughs> okay. Excellent. All right. And uh, what else we have today? Oh, of course. Um, I don't know if this helps take us to the next level here, but Liz Calloway was nominated for a Grammy. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, her sister, Anne Hampton Calloway, posted... <laughs> On social media, congratulations to my brilliant sister Liz for getting a Grammy nomination this morning for Best Traditional Pop Album for her fabulous To Steve With Love 
Liz Calloway celebrates Sondheim. I could not be more proud. And of course, congrats to Alex Rybeck, her musical director and arranger, Rit Hen, her bass, bass player, Ron Tierno, her drummer, Nick Foster, uh, who sang Move On with her, and Liz's husband, Dan Foster, her director, who are all an important part of this achievement. Um, really, really great news for Liz and um, nominated uh, opposite some really amazing people, including Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> um, and uh, I think this is the first live from studio, live from 54 below album released in quite some time, unless I missed one. Uh, so how wonderful for them uh, that it got a Grammy nomination. And it, it really is. Um, I, I like live recordings when they're done well. You know, I, I think it it's always fun and exciting to hear the audience response at the end of the songs uh, and at the beginning of the show and at the end of the show. So um, really, really great news for them. Just wonderful. And uh, Michael, we uh, along with uh, Liz's nomination, we had the cast albums for Kimberly Akimbo, Parade, Shucked, and Some Like It Hot and Sweeney Todd were also nominated. So will we see some, uh, some uh, nominee reviews and predictions over castalbumreviews.com? Well, uh, we've we've already uh, re- yeah reviewed some of those albums, those some of those cast albums. Great. I don't. I don't. You know. I don't do predictions. James. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at, at least we have these. Uh, you know, if we read the reviews of these albums, we can sort of interpolate from the reviews which one you might think might uh, might lead the pack there. So, <laughs> okay, okay, we'll see. <laughs> I would, I would, um, I would put my money on Sweetie Todd. I thought you don't, do although, predictions. although, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard, who knows, hard to say, you know, the Grammys and Josh Groban, you know, mm. I think Sweetie Todd, you know, and but you have Ben in Parade and uh, you know, the, the little show they could, Kimberly Akimbo still chugging along, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it so, is. I think next year, it, it uh, regardless of what else is released, next year I would put my money on "Merrily We Roll Along." <laughs> mm. Yeah, it has been recorded. Yeah, um, um, it'll be a Masterworks Broadway album. Peter, were you uh, able to go to some of the recording sessions? No, no, no. Um, the, <laughs> uh, I have had an accident, as uh, many people know, and um, so I, I wasn't able to know. Okay. I don't want you to tell any tales out of school, Peter, um, <laughs> about going to these recording sessions. But you did get over to the new Federal Theater, also called the Castile Theater, on 42nd Street to see Telling Tales Out of School. So tell us about that. Well, this takes place in 1954 in Harlem. And um, a, a gentleman has died. And so as a result, uh, various people show up at the service. And they are reasonably famous people at the time. Certainly one has uh, passed the test of time. That's Zora Neale Hurston. She's there. And so is Nancy Cunard, uh, who is um, from the Cunard family, uh, the Ship family. So is Jesse Fawcett. 
and uh, Nella Larson, who are writers as well. And what I have to say is that this is a very, very, very well-written piece by Wesley Brown and beautifully acted by an ensemble of uh, four women. Um, uh, Elizabeth Van Dyke is Zora Neale Hurston, Petronia Pelly is Nella, June Ballinger is Nancy, and Ricarda Abrams, um, Jesse Fawcett. So it really is a, a very nice on a very played in a very nice set too, an elegant set where they repair um after the ceremony and talk and talk. And I have to say this becomes the most civilized cat fight that I have ever seen. Uh each of them has an issue with the other. And one of the big issues of the play that I haven't mentioned specifically is that Nancy Cunard is white. The other three women are African American. And, of course, there will be some issues coming up about this woman being white, about how nice she is to black people. Is she being condescending or is she just being nice? Is she truly colorblind? Um, and uh, so that's a big issue of the play and is very well handled and very, very nicely uh, maneuvered by June Ballinger. Very nicely um, handled. But the other three women, too, are uh, just terrific in the way that they do criticize each other and yet with it never gets ugly ugly semi-ugly sure how can it not when you're going to make accusations about people there are accusations about plagiarism uh which certainly um when they come up it's so interesting to see the the pauses the pauses that woody king jr who certainly um <laughs> the theater is actually known as woody king jr's new federal theater that's the actual name of the company mm. and um elizabeth van dyke the producing artistic director um again plays or neil hurston but to see these elegant women harry it's it's an elegant sword fight rather than clubbing each other with uh, big cudgels. And that's what makes it effective. It's only an hour and 20 minutes. It's exactly as long as it should be. And I think it's a very effective piece of theater. Um, frankly, though, I will tell you, I love plays with people just sitting around talking. If you don't like that type of play, this is not for you. But if you do like that type of play and you're interested in hearing intellectuals speak, this is a very, very good outing. All right. Uh, so that is Telling Tales Out of School, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our brain teaser and our musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadervideo.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in, in on Apple Podcasts, there's many ways to listen to us. One of them is Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. And you can get our podcasts early as well as support us for all the different uh, shows that we do here at Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Mike, and Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? This illustrious songwriter saw his final Broadway musical open in the 50s, just two days before an illustrious composer saw the closing of a musical to which he'd contribute melodies. The name of the last song in the first songwriter's just open show rhymes with the title of the second composer's last Broadway musical. Well, we're talking about Cole Porter, whose Silk Stockings opened on February 24th, 1955, two days before Peter Pan 
with some music by Julie Stein, closed. One song in Silk Stockings is The Red Blues. Stein's last show was The Red Shoes, or as true musical theater aficionados prefer to call it, The Shoes as Red as Blood. For the second <laughs> consecutive week, Josh Israel was the first to get it, followed by Paul Whitty, Arthur Robinson, Tony Janicki, Brigadude, Jack Leshner, Juliet Green, and Mike Meany. This week's question. The first was a musical about Jackie Robinson, a baseball player who wore a uniform with the number 42 on its back. What musical theater character wore a baseball uniform that sported the number 33? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, we have two cuts from To Steve with Love, Liz Calloway Celebrates Sondheim. And I don't think I mentioned earlier that I was lucky enough to attend one performance of the show live at 54 Below. So that's another reason why I, I really, really love the fact that this is a live album and preserves all that excitement that we all felt uh, or that I felt on that evening and other people felt on other evenings. Um, so the opener is the opening medley, the beginning of the opening medley, beginning with company, the title song from company. And the closer is uh, Liz's really terrific rendition of the Miller's son from a little night music. Okay, so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's a very short fetch from the push and the whoop to the squint and the stoop and the mumble. It's not much of a stretch to the cribs and the croup and the bosoms that droop and go dry in the Kissed before mouths to be fed, and there's many a tryst, and there's many a bed to be sampled and seen in the meanwhile. And a girl has to celebrate what passes by, or I shall marry the Prince of Wales. Pearls and servants and dressing for festivals Friday nights with him all in tales We'll have dancing It's a rip in the bustle and a rustle in the hay And I'll pitch the quick fantastic With flings of confetti and my petticoats away up high It's a very short way from the fling that's for fun To the thigh pressing under the table It's a very short day till you're stuck with just one Or it has to be done on the sly In the meanwhile There are to be kissed before mouths to be fed and there's many a tryst and there's many a bed there's a lot I'll have missed but I'll not have been dead when I die and a person should celebrate everything passing 
goodbye And I shall marry the miller's son Thank you.